Hey everybody, it's Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis and Blake Murphy, and it's a day after NBA trade deadline day, and you've had a good night's sleep, Blake. Uh, I see you have, have a I? new, I, I mean, I, assuming you've had a night's sleep at least, part of a night's sleep. Uh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't. I, sh- I shouldn't say it's a good night's sleep. I assume it was good. Uh, you've you've published some more trade deadline content on Sportsnet.ca, and I assume you've done all your data entry. Or do you need like a data data entry intern? Like, are you? Should we be canvassing for somebody to 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 be putting the data into your spreadsheets? Because that feels like something you could have somebody do. Somebody would love to to be by your side, just putting in all your numbers. There are a couple issues with that. Uh, one, I don't have budget for that. And if I made enough money to pay someone to do that, I would just keep the money myself. Uh, and point. two, I'm not trusting someone else with my spreadsheets. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, I think that's the biggest thing. Because, you know, someone, no, nobody needs to be paid to, to intern alongside the great Blake Murphy, see behind the curtain at how the sausage is made there. But, yeah, I think that's the, the key thing is that you wouldn't trust anybody to mess with your precious, precious Excel spreadsheets, right? And I wouldn't want to ask someone for unpaid labor. Yeah. Well, that feels I, not a good thing for someone in my position to do. Yeah, did, did you never do free interning? Buddy, I have uh I have wrote written so much stuff for free over the years like yeah. Like I I just like it's part of the game. It's part of how you build your byline up and your reputation up and it's uh it's part of it, but I have tried even when I was, you know, running Raptors Republic and stuff uh to not forward that necessity on wherever possible. So uh, yeah, I mean, we don't need to get into capitalism and, and all that kind of stuff here. But, no, let's get uh, into capitalism. All right. We, we got we got an hour and a half here. Let's get yeah. into capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I just I wouldn't want to uh, where I could anyway. But yeah, there's also the trust level. Like anyone who is less established enough that they would even be interested in such a gig would yeah. not be established enough to have my trust with my spreadsheets. Okay, so the precious spreadsheets are updated. Uh, they're good to go. And again, you published uh, some more content on sportsnet.ca just uh, mere moments ago. People can check that out. But today's top story is this is the final show before Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, Super Bowl 57 has the top two seeds in both the AFC and the NFC and this is expected to be a close affair, as you would imagine, with the top two seeds. Eagles go into this one as one-and-a-half-point favorites over the Chiefs. It's, you know, you can say it's closer than the most the most recent Super Bowls, but you don't have to go that far back to, to, to find a Super Bowl where the line was pretty similar. Three years ago, the Chiefs were one-and-a-half-point favorites against the Niners. That Patriots-Seahawks game was a pick and that proved correct. That was a pretty close game. But these are, are, are two teams that are deserving to be in this game. Totally different paths, though, Blake. I was just, man, if you go through the Eagles' schedule, not just the, the postseason games that they've had to win, but what was the, the hardest game that the Eagles have played this season? You have to go back to, like, week six against Cooper Rush and the Cowboys. It has been absolutely cake for them. Tissue paper. Tissue paper soft. It has not been a challenging 
uh, stretch. Of course, they they did beat the Jacksonville Jaguars at one point, but um, that was before they they really clicked. And yeah, they had two late season losses, but they were without Jalen Hurts and kind of just like chilling. Um, yeah. The Commanders loss they had back in Week Ten seems like a real outlier. Um, those things happen over the course of football season. It's why teams never go undefeated, even if they're the best. Um, it's like it's not even that you have to go back a while for the last time they had like a really tough game on paper necessary. Like the last Giants regular season game was close and whatever. But like the last time they were really challenged was probably week 11 against the Colts and playoff games are challenging, but I mean like it's coming down to the wire and you need Mm -hmm. your defense to make huge plays. You need Jalen hurts to make huge plays. They have been so good that that hasn't even really mattered. Like we talk sometimes in basketball about clutch stats and Hey, what's your, performance when it's within five in the last five minutes and the Eagles stats for that would be no like they just don't get in those situations <laughs> they've been so dominant and yeah. we also haven't seen them play like AFC good AFC teams so we don't yeah. really even have a like hey how'd you look against this team versus how opponent the Chiefs look against that team yeah we don't even have that not that it's the most fruitful but yeah it does feel like we're we're heading into this one unsure if the Eagles are just way better than everyone or if there may be paper tigers and the chiefs have the exact opposite thing where at no point have they looked super, super dominant during this playoff run and stuff. And then you look through and it's like, yeah, but they played like a hundred good quarterbacks and uh, Mahomes is playing injured and they've been tested and seen most things a defense could throw at them. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, they're battle-tested, and, of course, have been in a couple Super Bowls, having won one. They, they know what it takes to win these things. And, I I mean, I keep bringing it up that it feels like it's two teams where one is just the better team overall and one has the better quarterback. But, I, you know, digging a little deeper into the numbers, Blake, I don't even know how true that is. If you go by Football Outsiders, DVOA, yeah, the Eagles were third. The Chiefs were fourth. Like, they're right there. Like, that that's a good football team. They have some great pass rushers. They have some great players on the defensive side of the football. And, yes, they have some absolute playmakers on offense. And they they don't have the, the Tyreek Hill on the outside, I suppose, anymore. But they have the best quarterback in the NFL. The more I think about this, the more I, I, I tend to think that it's, it's going to be – maybe not an easy Chiefs win, but that they're getting disrespected in a way that they're not only not favorites, but that they're not more significant favorites. I mean, the other thing I was looking at, too, is like Nick Sirianni and deserves a ton of credit, right? A uh, couple of seasons at the helm of this Eagles team coming off, what, a four-win season in the last year of Carson Wentz, making the transition to Jalen Hurts and gets them over 500 and then into a Super Bowl in his second season. He was first in the NFL in aggressiveness index, which apparently, so like one is like you're an average uh, aggressive head coach. He was 1.57, so he's 57% more likely to go for it than the average coach in similar situations. But going back to the schedule thing, you know when it's easy to go for it? When you know that you're probably going to beat the other team anyways because you're just way better than them. Let's see what happens if he's got a fourth and two at midfield down seven to Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid and the Kansas City Chiefs in the freaking Super Bowl. It's just it's a totally different animal for this guy. It is. And we'll see how that goes. We talked to Peter King earlier in the week about his drive along with Sirianni and how that felt and what he learned from that 
was a great chat, but you don't know, right? You don't know until you're in these spots. And that's the one area that, you know, it, it it's something you can't know until we see him in that spot. Like we saw on the way up the so-called innocent climb with Brandon Staley, for example, all the gunslinging decisions and the hyper aggression and quote unquote analytics choices, which is an unfair characterization, but um, we saw all of that and it was great. And then once the Chargers started playing in meaningful games and that was his only pitch, then suddenly he looks like an overmatched coach who, well, a lot of that stuff was maybe paying off because you caught teams off guard or Justin Herbert's just that good. We're going to see a little bit of that with the Eagles because you're right. I don't think there's a scenario where this Chiefs team goes away easily in this game. And, you know, in addition to some of the metrics being fairly close but favoring the Eagles, uh, you're also looking at a Chiefs team that's maybe not quite as healthy as the Mm -hmm. Eagles team. Uh, A lot of limiteds on those practice reports still. Um, Of course, teams are going to take it a little easier this week anyway, but... um, it's uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to see. And it's also, you know, he's head-to-head against Andy Reid, who for a while in his career was what I just kind of laid out with Staley, right? It was like, wow, this guy's really good at getting you 12 regular season wins. Yeah. And that's it. Dude, so, it's, it's such a – it's a weird circumstance where – I mean, everybody's happy with the divorce, right? Like, that, that mm-hmm. Andy Reid... I mean, that's that's going to be one of the huge storylines headed into this thing. Andy Reid facing his former team that kept getting to NFC Championship games, gets to the Super Bowl, and it just so happens that his quarterback throws up in the huddle. But, yeah, that, that, that he departs and has immediate success. It, it just so happens that he has, like, an all-time quarterback. Also, land in his lap, but then the Eagles already win one Super Bowl in yet another since he left. I wonder if there's... If there's anything to be learned there, like my, my initial gut feeling is, and it's not universally true, maybe maybe that's what we should learn about anything really in sports is that there's no universal truths, but if I was going to pull anything out of it is that sometimes the pushback to firing somebody is, well, who's the better option? Or like, you know, how are you going to do better than this? And sometimes it's just better to, to, to go into the unknown because Andy Reid was still on a Hall of Fame track, even if he hadn't won a Super Bowl. He's clearly in, in the Hall of Fame now after winning one and getting to now three or four, I suppose, if you add the, the Eagles one. But, yeah, you would have been well within your rights to just say, hey, th- this guy, it, it's not his fault that we keep coming up short in, in the postseason. We're just going to keep taking kicks at the can at it. But instead, they cut him loose and... Howie Roseman has to get a lot of credit, the general manager of the Eagles here. But I wonder if there is a, like a lesson. And yeah, I can't help but think about the, the Toronto Maple Leafs in this regard. It's not, hey, Kyle Dubas hasn't had the same kind of runway, and he's a general manager, not a head coach. But in the NFL, we can we can talk about the import of a head coach being similar to that of a general manager. That, yeah, maybe there is, like, there is, there's something to just moving off of someone for the sake of moving off them um, even though they're they're good, if not great. At the same time, though, if you're using the Dubas comparison, what I was getting ready to say before you mentioned him is that I think the common thread there with the Eagles and maybe how you're able to turn it around so quickly is that you do have that front office stability, right? Howie Roseman's mm-hmm. been there for decades now, and yeah, I mean, he obviously the front office wears some of the short some of the failures of coming really close all the time but it's also like what has been what 
franchise in the NFC has been more consistently good to great over the last couple decades and been in the mix so often. And, you know, if we, if we kind of assume that there's a hierarchy here, we're like, okay, well, your front office puts you in the position to be competitive and then your coaching staff puts you in position to win week to week. And then it's on the players to execute play to play. Um, you know, that, that stable and quality foundation that the Eagles front office has provided is maybe part of it. Now, maybe that holds a little less in football because ownership is a bigger factor. A lot of the time in football and people, um, you know, they, they, you're at the whims of billionaires sometimes. I don't know, but that's, there's going to be a little bit of that in every sport. So I, I don't know. It'll be fascinating to see how this one goes. And beyond that, how the Eagles do or do not continue to stay in the mix under Sirianni and Jalen Hurts for a long time. Yeah, here's the thing. Who, whoever ended up as Patrick Mahomes' head coach, hard to imagine that they would have screwed it up to a degree in which Patrick Mahomes isn't in the mix, at least, year over year over year, because he's that damn good. And I know he also has a Hall of Fame tight end, but they just, like, totally strip-mined the wide receiving core and and went on the cheap with the Marcus Valdez-Scantlings and the Juju smith Schusters and the Kadarius Tonys of the world, and yeah, he's in yet another Super Bowl. By the way, if if there are still questions about Patrick Mahomes' ankle, which I suppose there are, even though he's listed as a full participant in all these practices, and we saw what he looked like in the AFC Championship game, unless like he did further damage to it by the end of the game, which I, I wouldn't, I guess, rule out, but... He completed every pass he threw from outside of the tackle box in that AFC Championship game uh, and every pass that he attempted on the run where he was going eight-plus miles an hour or holding the ball for longer than four seconds. Like, he completed – he was perfect in those situations. Uh, So it's hard to be too fretful about what Patrick Mahomes is going to look like from a, a health standpoint, even against this great pass rush of the Eagles. I was going to say, well, it's a great thing that he has looked comfortable scrambling and throwing against a lot of pressure because they have the the Kansas City Chiefs statistically have some of the worst tackles in in football at protecting the quarterback from pressure. And this is the Eagles defense that has been phenomenal pressuring quarterbacks, even without blitzing. It's this interesting. We talked to Peter about it the other day. It's this interesting anomaly of it kind of goes against, you know, what, what the book is in football that you got to blitz to get pressure on the quarterback. And the Eagles are just like, nah, no, we don't. Um, It's going to be, that's a, it's a fun thing. And I know that like speaking personally, O-line play, D-line play, that's uh, I mean, D-line play is a little more straightforward, but um, you know, if you have come to football as well, I'm playing Madden and I'm watching my team and I'm watching for fantasy and stuff, what the offensive line is doing and what some of the defensive tactics are, um, are one of the things that come to you a little later after you've watched a lot of it and, and read a lot of it. Um, that is really fascinating to me at this point uh, for Sunday because it seems like, I mean, it's easy to say, well, yeah, the line, both teams have one and they're always on the field. Um, yeah. But how the how the Chiefs try to manage um, the Eagles' ability to put seven back against Mahomes and still have him running on a bum ankle and stuff, it's... Uh, or maybe the the Chiefs has something up their sleeve to protect a little better. I got one last nugget before we move off the Super Bowl for now, and we'll have a couple of guests on later today. By the way, it's only a 90-minute show as we get you set for the Leafs 
uh, first game after their bye week in Columbus against the Blue Jackets uh, at 6.30, Leafs Nation pregame. But we got Adnan Verk coming up at the bottom of the hour and then Ross Tucker to send us into the weekend. All right, Mr. Numbers, how about this? Um, Patrick Mahomes just named NFL MVP. The last nine MVPs that played in the Super Bowl, they've all lost. Like nine consecutive MVPs that have played in the Super Bowl have lost. In 2017, it was Brady losing to these Eagles. Matt Ryan, of course, lost to Tom Brady's uh, Patriots. Cam Newton lost. Peyton Manning got smoked by the Seahawks. Peyton Manning lost to the Saints. Tom Brady lost to the Giants. Sean Alexander lost to the Steelers. Rich Gannon lost to the Buccaneers. And Kurt Warner started this whole thing off in 2001 losing to Tom Brady. Is this anything? I think it's, well, no, it's not anything. Um, I think (laughs) one, the MVP is a regular season award, of course. And then I don't have a vote. And the, you know, the MVP voting process is new this year with the, you're, you're doing a ranked ballot instead of just, um, instead of just voting for one person. So maybe this allows for a little more, justice in the voting but i do think there's probably at least a little bit of narrative fatigue sometimes and a new surprising team like if an mvp gets the mvp because oh this team over delivered and we didn't think that this team was going to be this good the thing that follows from that is that well maybe they actually aren't that good or as good as the other Super Bowl team they're going up against. I don't know. Those are a bunch of pretty good quarterbacks. Peyton Manning twice and Tom Brady a couple of times. And Peyton yeah. Manning, uh, he was just a young upstart. <laughs> I'm just trying to – I'm just, like, the answer is no, it's not anything, but <laughs> I don't know how be. to – yeah, yeah like, I don't know. M- having not. MVPs is bad. I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what the, where to go from there. No, you're right. It's just that is bizarre. All right, that was today's top story. Uh, there's lots to get to today. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll save maybe our, our Leafs and Raptors conversations for the end of the show. But Ross Atkins, Blue Jays general manager, did a media availability today on Bo Bichette officially signing his three-year deal with a bunch of escalators, which were not publicly available, but they're they're based on MVP votes and how close to the top of the MVP ballot you get. And Bichette's gotten MVP votes. He's never finished in the top five before. Um, but yeah, Ross was, was asked about whether this is uh, indicative of some traction on a long-term deal for Bo Bichette or maybe some of the, the other Toronto Blue Jays players that dialogue is ongoing as it is with many players and it is this is a good step in that process because ultimately you don't get any deal beyond one year done that isn't sharing some risk Uh, those are the deals that when there are extensions and when there are um, you know extended uh, pre-arb deals they're always in and around sharing so they always involve sharing risk all right that's that tracks and that that I mean that's just logical he, he's right right like if if Bo Bichette's camp was like no we're gonna squeeze every single dollar out of you they could have done that year over year over year but the idea of, of like a, a longer term eight ten year extension for Bo Bichette would be hey here's the upside here's the low side can we find somewhere in between where both of us are covered a little bit or both of us are risking a bit if if the performance varies on the high side or on the low side and 
that's that they've figured it out for for three years. It's a little bit more complicated going beyond that. But the fact that that those are conversations that have already been fruitful, that that tracks for me, Blake. That that it's it's a it's at least a a sign that a longer extension is possible for Bobichet extending into his free agent years. And like we talked about yesterday a little bit, um, or whenever we have Ben Nicholson Smith on, it also in in addition to that, it tells you. You know, yeah, you're not only on the same page, like he said, about risk sharing and how that all works, but you're also, you have a baseline to work from now where, you know, heading into this year or heading into this arbitration process, we were worried that, well, these two sides feel very differently about Bobachet's value, but they've now established a baseline. And I'm sure they went through player comps around the league and things like that. And they have now established that, okay, this is roughly the band we see Bo's value within this is how we compare them to other shortstops around baseball and i don't think it would be as hard anymore like to start having those conversations about okay well like instead of looking at other shortstop arb deals let's look around at other shortstop you know buy out your first five years of free agency kind of deals um i don't know that that's imminent or anything like that but i think that's good and and just by the way for anyone who doesn't know if mvp votes seems like a uh a high bar for you for bonus structure um major league baseball does uh writers get 10 spots on their mvp ballot so there is a a good amount of room like 22 different guys in the national league got votes this year yeah i was gonna say yeah bo i i I had it up he's like he was a top 15 mvp guy i think this this past season as you would expect a, a guy that led the american league in hits in two consecutive years and plays shortstop you're going to get some mvp votes and and if you play on a team that wins like 100 games yeah and 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 maybe you hit a couple more home runs you could see him getting inside the top five certainly he came 12th in 2021 and 11th in 2022 the other thing that the team can do is now that like 7 million of the 40 million is you know, so just shy of 20% of his total earnings potential is based on MVP votes. They could just be like, well, it's not our fault. Blame the damn media. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's uh, really very nice and good. So, yeah, uh, Shai Davidi has the, the crosshairs on his forehead. The other thing I took away from this thing was, yeah, Ross Atkins kept saying that, hey, the arbitration, the, 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 the system is set up that we have to be willing to use it. But man, did he sound loath to to go down that path? Like I, I I know we try and imagine these guys as super professional, and if they got there, they would have been as professional as possible. But it really did feel like Blake, like they're they were afraid of of the human element of it, and having gone through it with Marcus Stroman, understanding that yeah, I, you, you can go into it with the best intentions, but the unintended consequences of these things are kind of far-reaching. I really did get the sense that this team wasn't all that interested in going to arbitration with Bo Bichette and and had to pay a bit of a price to, to, to avoid it. Which is fine. That's that's why you stretch these things out and why the process takes, you know, like two months sometimes is uh, you want to set different points on the calendar for, you know, okay, we're this far apart. Well, by this date, we better be this close or it's getting hairy. And by this date, we better be this close or it's getting hairy. Um, I personally, like, I I can't imagine wanting to go through the arbitration process as a front office. Um, and me being a, a emotional, sad boy, I wouldn't want to go through it on the player. Like, I, I absolutely would cave because I don't want to have to sit across from someone while they tell me all the oh reasons God. I'm bad and not good enough. <laughs> but as a front office, as a means of, like, 
maintaining relationships and culturally and all that stuff, uh, I wouldn't want to be doing that either. So um, I don't think it's all that surprising that they have used file and trial pretty infrequently and that there are a lot of front offices around baseball who use it pretty infrequently. Yeah. And uh, we still have yet to hear from Bo Bichette, but Ross Atkins assured everybody that he's very happy with his many millions of dollars. So, so, so that's very nice and good. And we'll hear from him shortly because the Blue Jays report to spring training uh, very shortly. Pitchers and catchers next week. All right. When we come back, Adnan Verk's Eagles on the verge of yet another Super Bowl this weekend. Uh, we'll talk to the man from MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast next as the fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Drive Time Sports Center 590 The Fan, Ben Ennis, and Blake Murphy. It's the last program before Super Bowl Sunday. Eagles, Chiefs from Arizona, uh, the same side of the Waste Management Phoenix Open, Blake, which is also a Super Bowl tradition. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the golf tournament where they have the, the par three, the 16th hole, and it's it's like a stadium seating, and, and people get drunk and, and throw beer cans at the green when when someone gets a, a hole in one it's a so it's a real thing it's a real lead up into into the game on sunday you're, you're not a golf guy necessarily but like will that suck you in at all no not, not even a little bit <laughs> no that's it that's uh i'm not a golf guy i'm a majors only and maybe if there's an interesting final day uh thing with some some names i know but no that is like it's cool but i can see the highlights uh of that i don't need to watch it live and oh same um, same with same with the super bowl you can just watch the highlights yeah but i'm i'm uh i like football a lot i'm not i'm just i don't have any attachment to golf um i do have an attachment with drinking beers and throwing them at stuff but uh yeah i can i can that's another thing i can do elsewhere um no i don't know it's cool it's nice that there's a golf tradition around the super bowl um i didn't know that and (laughs) It's cool. Yeah, it's it's great. I, I just I mostly get a kick out of Waste Management Open being the name. Yeah. Because yes. like obviously in every like mafia show or movie, like mm-hmm. waste management is the cover for what they do. So this is like to me it's the mafia open. Yeah. It's a, it's strictly a money laundering tournament. That's it. Pretty well. So, yeah, we won't have a breakdown of – well, the, it, next week is kind of going to be a big golf week, Blake, and we can avoid it, I suppose. But Tiger Woods is going to play his first non-major PGA event since 2020 when he plays his Genesis Invitational at Riviera in Los Angeles. And also the, the Netflix golf show comes out where it's like PGA Tour versus the Live Tour, and we get to see the behind-the-scenes of the millionaires getting all mad at each other. And, you know, why is – Rory so mad at Patrick Reed is it because he served him with with uh with papers on on Christmas on Christmas Eve um so you're saying that you're even Tiger Woods can't suck you into the golf world 
No, like I said, if it's a major and there's an interesting Sunday thing, like I'm not averse to golf. I just don't have much connection to it. And um, particularly this weekend, we're like, Raptors play tonight. There's a huge UFC event tomorrow night. The Raptors play immediately before the Super Bowl on Sunday. Yeah. By the way, uh, speaking of the Raptors, Jakob Pertl will play tonight. Uh, nice. We just got that come down. So it's so a must a, win. Must win. It's Imagine a, you, you you give up your first-round pick next year for a guy that's supposed to be the, the linchpin. He's, he's supposed to change the fortunes of this team entirely. you got to win first game with him, don't you? Must win. Must watch. Must uh, make the play in, must everything. Um, it'll be, it should be a lot of fun though. Yeah. All right. Uh, Adnan Burke, our pal, joins us now. MLB Network, NHL Network, the Cinephile Podcast, Eagles fan. Um, what's your confidence level at, buddy? It's so funny you ask, Ben. All week, in fact, the last two weeks, I've been incredibly confident, which is a little bit unnatural for me when it comes to my sports teams, right? Like, you generally kind of vacillate between concern and slight fears, but I've been super confident all week. And then something happened today. It's like you think that you've aced the exam, and then you realize you left a couple of sections empty. And I completely blame Colin Coward. I was listening to him today, and he was telling me how the Eagles basically hit the jackpot in terms of everything going well for them this season, in terms of scheduling, in terms of facing Daniel Jones three times, facing a fourth-string quarterback. The Chiefs are more battle-tested. They have a more veteran quarterback. They have a more veteran coach. They've been there before. Oh, my God. So now the anxiety is starting to set in, but I'm trying to just ignore Colin Cowherd and anybody else who's getting into my head and focus on the pauses, which is Philly is the better team, right? Mahomes is the better player. We're the better team. I'm trying to lock up the nonsense right now. Uh, I guess they're the better team. I mean, who knows what what the the final statistical analysis of the Chiefs would have been if they had played the Eagles' schedule, though, Adnan. Like, honestly, what what is the best Eagles win this season, whether you're talking about the postseason or the regular season? We were so looking forward to that Niners game, and then, of course, they had the QB apocalypse happen. Like, do you you count, like, the Cooper (laughs) Rush win over the Cowboys in Week 6? Outside of that, it's like... Where is, where's the signature win for this Eagles team? Win against the Vikings. The Vikings is always shrinking in prime time early in the season. Philadelphia takes it to, nah, don't give me that, nah. That was the Vikings team. It's supposed to be one of the best teams in the league, and Philly <laughs> took it to them. That, to me, was a statement victory right there. Come on, Vikings, that was a big win. Do we need to call a rash and have him talk you down on how the Vikings weren't actually very good and they were fraudulent the whole time and it can't count as a marquee victory if it's over Kirk Cousins because those are the only games he loses, et cetera? Listen, 14-3 and three is 14-3. and three. Ultimately, we are what our record is. We have bashed the teams we needed to take care of, right? We ran rough shot where need be. And ultimately, here's the stat that I most rest my head on. 16-1 and one with Hurts as the starting quarterback. Right? A couple yeah. of losses against the Cowboys are a right, big deal. Whatever. Fine. Gardner Minshew against the Saints. But 16-1 and when our guy is going good. Now, again, yep. if I want to get the adjective going, I will, I will correctly tell myself, Hurts has not looked Hurts-esque since returning. He's been fine. He's been good. But we've had an incredible running game. Defense has played great. We've been fine. Is Hurts healthy, i.e. strong enough to win this game on Sunday? I'm not totally sure on that. But I do know this. Philadelphia loves to get out to an early lead and then try to coast, right? Great front runner. So does KC. And Philly loves to do this. The analytics prove this. Throw the ball early and then run the ball late, right? Ball control late, but don't do it early. So the big thing is, well, Hurts, I mean, I love a big deep ball early on. You know, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, 2,000-yard receivers. The Chiefs' safeties aren't great. Their corners, not 100%. I, I, I will bet every one of the dollars you guys earn on today's show 
the Eagles will go for a deep threat early on. I mean, the first or second drive, right? This is not going to be, uh, you know, a couple of running plays. They're going to go deep and they're going to go big. If they hit on one of those big plays, that would be massive for the Eagles and their confidence and, and people like me hoping that Hurts is all the way back. Yeah, I mean, the question is, though, if they, they don't go up early, right? Like if they have to come back and and you have to be aggressive late into this game and you don't have the experience of, of being in a third Super Bowl uh, if you're Patrick Mahomes or a fourth, if you're Andy Reid and, and it's totally new to you and you played nobody uh, also, like, uh, yeah, that that to me <laughs> is, is the big question. We were also talking about this earlier. This is your franchise, so, you, you I mean, you go way back with the Eagles. I mean, has there ever been a, a, a case like what we've seen here in Philadelphia where everybody's so happy with the Andy Reid divorce? Like, Andy Reid goes on to Kansas City and gets a Hall of Fame quarterback and wins a Super Bowl, is on the verge of winning another, has appeared in three, and then the Eagles win one and then are in another one, like, shortly thereafter. It's, it's pretty insane how the subsequent decade has played out for both sides. No, I completely agree, Ben, and it's a good point. Normally there's some animus towards the guy who left town, but in this case, but no. Big Red's a good dude, had a great run with the Eagles over 14 years. I mean, the only coach ever to have two 100-plus wins with two franchises, to me, is staggering to have that kind of longevity and success in two distinct places. And it isn't like, you know, again, it's different conferences, different places geography-wise. Like Philadelphia and KC, those are those two very, very different places to win and doing it in, in different ways. Like, you think about Andy Reid, it's, it's always offense with him. But again, the offense is much more prolific with Mahomes than it was with McNabb. And yet, he was able to be successful in, in both sides of the football and wherever need be. So I'm with you that normally, you're like, oh, I can't believe we got rid of Andy Reid. I wish we still kept him. But in this was, but no, Andy Reid did his thing. We had Doug Peterson who won a Super Bowl. Sirianni feels like the next big thing as well. He's got a giant chip on his shoulder. Um, so it really has worked out well for both sides. It's funny. I was thinking about, all, as you mentioned, all the, the famous players in the past and guys that I love. And I've been seeing, you know, Donovan McNabb being interviewed, Brian Dawkins. And I'm like, I'm wondering, I'm like, like McNabb is a guy who was very close to Andy Reid. Like, I'm assuming he's cheering for the Eagles. He seems like he's a fan of Jalen Hurts. But I'm like, all these guys are very close to Andy Reid. So you're right. It's, it's a cool little subplot to watch in the background. Adnan, got to ask you, one of my favorite things on uh, in our chats with you over this court, this year and since I've been on the station is – you know, obviously you, you cover sports as a professional and you you have your setup on MLB Network and NHL Network, but you get so excited telling us about like going to this Habs game or, or taking your kids to this Raptors game or uh, your world junior traditions. What is the setup for you on Sunday? What's going down? It's a great question, Blake. So I, I previously watched the, the Eagles Super Bowl victory uh, at home in Connecticut back in my years at ESPN. I didn't want to jinx that with the guys. I'd watched every game at home. I kind of was superstitious in that respect. This time I said, I'm going to Philadelphia. And then I talked to every one of my friends who's from Philadelphia, and they said, don't come. And I said, what? And they go, listen, win or lose, it's going to be a disaster. Like, there might be violence. There might be vandalism. Like, don't do it. Don't, don't come to Chicky Pete's, which is a famed Philadelphia sports bar. Perhaps the real sports of Philadelphia, to put it into Toronto circles. They're like, don't come here. Don't do it. So I still look at another option, which is, how about a Philadelphia-type bar set in New York City? There's a place called Old Town, O-L-D-E, which, again, we can start to mock whether or not that's cool or not. But Old Town Cheesesteaks, and apparently it's known as Madison 28th. You can look it up. That's known as like a Philadelphia-type spot. So they got their cheesesteaks. They've got Philadelphia paraphernalia everywhere. And I'm thinking I'm going to go there. But, Blake, here's the issue. I really want to, again, spend it with my kids. Um, and the two boys who are really into it are 14 and 6. I mean, th- we can now call together whether this is bad parenting. I don't know if you can take a 14 and a 6-year-old to a New York 
bar slash restaurant for like eight hours. Everyone said, you've got to get there like four hours before the game. So long story short, one of my guys has basketball practice. I think we're going to basketball practice. I think we're going to go to New York City. I think we're going to wait outside for a cheesesteak for an hour. I think we're going to eat that cheesesteak. I think we're going to go home and watch it in my basement. I think that is what's going to be because ultimately I can't imagine spending eight hours. I just want the boys to see some of the ambiance, right? I want them to look around and see a guy in a Seth Joyner jersey. I want them to see a Brian Westbrook jersey. (laughs) I want somebody to yell out Rich Kotite and everyone to get the joke. As long as they get that stuff, we're going to go back and watch it at home. Yeah, probably going to Philadelphia where they're already like greasing up the lampposts and and, and, and <laughs> things of that nature is probably not a great idea. And I'm also the wrong person to ask because my parents took me to bars like like every Friday we would go to the local bar. In fact, I I had a birthday party at a bar. Like honestly, my parents asked the bar if 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 they could open it up in the afternoon because there were like video games and stuff at the bar. And I had I, I it must have been like my tenth birthday party. At a bar, so yeah, not 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 the right guy to ask. Um, Unbelievable! Right, so, like, rather than Chuck E. Cheese, the Ennis is went to the local right. watering hole. I love this. Yeah, all right. I I know this is a nightmare scenario for you, but like, let's play this out. The Chiefs win oh, the no. football game. Patrick uh, Patrick Mahomes now has two. He becomes one of twelve quarterbacks ever to have multiple Super Bowl victories. He's only twenty-seven, and he's only been in the league as a starter for five years. Um, is he a top five quarterback already? Like Tom Brady, obviously number one. Uh, Montana, I think you got to throw in there too. I think Peyton Manning is is clearly still there. Elway, and then is it like Mahomes next, or do you put Aikman with his three ahead of him? Terry Bradshaw had four. Obviously, football is a little bit different then. Ben Roethlisberger, where does he fit into the mix? Eli Manning has a couple. Aaron Rodgers has the one. Drew Brees with the one. Like where where does Patrick Mahomes rank all time if he comes away with the victory? I think he's still not even top 10 because I've got to include the old guys. And I know it's hard to include different eras, but you got to put some respect on Johnny Unitas and Otto Graham. All right, let's go. Yeah. Those guys have got to be in the conversation for top 10. So all those names you said, I'm with you on the top three for sure. Brady, Montana, Manning. I'll put Elway four with you if you like. But after that, i got to get Johnny U. Come on, Johnny U's at five. Otto Graham's at six. i got to get uh, Dan Marino's in my top 10. Yeah. Um, Do you have to win know, a Super it, Bowl it, 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 to, to get Brett in there? Favre, no. Brett Favre. Okay. Brett, Brett Favre seven. How about? Yeah. And I, God, I hate Brett Favre, especially after the nonsense of Mississippi. What a yeah. horrible person! But I, I have to put him in the top ten. He did win a Super Bowl. You're right, Marino. You can make the argument didn't win. Then Bradshaw's going to be number eight. I'll get Roethlisberger at nine. Fine. Mahomes, if he wins, potentially number ten ahead of Troy Aikman. That's that's. But that that already steals a little bit much. Like I, I listen. The guy is a future Hall of Famer, but I don't think he is yet. But if he balls out and has a phenomenal performance, I mean, respect on the man. I mean, everybody knows if the Eagles win this Super Bowl, you feel like it'll be a collection of performances. It's going to be a great, a great offensive line, a great defensive line. The one thing for the Eagles is they build strength upon strength, and they're going to try to win this game in the trenches. But if the Chiefs win, everyone knows it's going to be Mahomes. Like, could you imagine any scenario in which the Chiefs win the Super Bowl and the MVP isn't Patrick Mahomes? Like, I can't imagine, right? If they win, he's going 27 of 35, throwing for 352, three touchdowns and one pick. And like, yeah, Mahomes again. So, uh, to, to your point, Ben, if he's going to win, if they're going to win, it's because of him. And that's why he's, he's a superstar around which everyone transcends. But if you're talking all-time quarterbacks, no. Even with a win, I'm not putting him top 10 yet. That's fair, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I do live in the moment, though. He, he's definitely on track. Um, and Bart yeah, Star. It, I'm putting Bart Starr on the top ten ahead of him. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> All right, so we, we, we uh, changing gears slightly, we, we just talked a little bit about this. Ross Atkins spoke today after uh, locking up Bo Bichette to the, the three-year deal, which takes him through his arbitration years. It doesn't change his free agency, which happens in three seasons' time. And we've gone back and forth. We've had some great Bo Bichette conversations with you, Adnan, and I remember talking to you early in the season last year about how disappointing Bo's season had been, and then... He goes on this absolute tear as the Blue Jays' best hitter the second half of the season and ends up with the basically the same counting stats in 2022 as he did in 2021. And now that we've seen him get, I understand, no free agent years bought out, but a multi-year extension where Vladimir Guerrero Jr., making $14.5 million this year, did come to that one-year agreement with the Toronto Blue Jays, but no multi-year extension for him. Like, if you were, if you were, if you were going to make a wager on... If, if the Blue Jays were going to sign one of these two guys for the rest of their careers or the, the lion's share of it, would it now, like, would the needle now be pointing towards Bo Bichette? It seems to tilt a little bit in that direction, but I am sure the Jays will move hell and high water to make sure that it's both those guys staying with the Blue Jays for a long, long time. I, I don't believe Ross has given us the number. I wish we did know because what I found interesting was that the arbitration numbers, right? Bo's camp is offering, they want 75 Jays were saying five. That was a pretty big discrepancy. So like you said, I don't know what this three years is. Three years, 30, three years, 40. Who knows what it is? But as you said, he's still going to be able to be a free agent at the age of 27, which is prime real estate, especially for a shortstop who does what he does. And as long as he performs to his capabilities, he's going to get one of these Xander Bogarts or Correa or whomever contract that we just saw this offseason. But I think for Toronto, ultimately there's three guys you want to sign long-term. It's Bo, it's Vlad Jr., and it's Alec Manoa. And now there's real no urgency with any of those three guys because the fact they're still arbitration eligible, especially now with Bo. He said, well, we've got three years. We can at least play for a year or two and try to get it done. But I'm always desirous, fellas, of getting it done as quick as you can. Like, look at Julio Rodriguez. He gets called up within his rookie season. DePoto's this bizarre contract. I mean, I still can't understand it. But all I know is he's going to be in Seattle the rest of his career. He can make up to, like, $300 million or as little as 180 but whatever. Like, they've seen enough that Julio's going to be their guy. The Orioles are going to lock up Rutschman, et cetera. So I think for Toronto, like, you see what you need to see here. Like, what, what more do you need to see from Vlad Jr. and Boba Shit to know that they're the guys? Now, maybe with the case of Bo, as you said, earlier in the year, I was critical of the fact. I don't think his defense is as good as advertised. I don't know how well that's going to age over a seven, eight, nine-year contract. He was tremendous down the stretch again, but it was inconsistent earlier in the year. But if Bo's the guy who's going to hit 290, 25 home runs, 90 RBI, and you want to say, you know what, just give him the eight-year $300 million contract now, like, I'm good with that. But I think what they're doing is they're buying themselves a little bit of time by buying up the arbitration years. But Vlad Jr. and Manoa, like, both those guys, I mean, they're all going to be very, very expensive. So it'd be nice to at least get one of those deals done until you have to get it done two years from now. Adnan, spring training getting underway pretty shortly here. I believe the first game on Sportsnet is next Friday. Uh, we're also going to get a little taste soon of the World Baseball Classic. And we, you guys at MLB Network had the roster reveal yesterday. Little bit of uh, air out of the balloon when it comes to Canada's roster. But with teams like Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, uh, we are seeing some of the greatest baseball teams we've ever seen assembled on paper. Uh, what are you most excited about about the WBC this time through? Well, you touched on it, Blake, which is the offenses of those teams. You know, I was looking, I was on Tuesday's show. We had Adam Wainwright, Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt, all the show, all those guys playing for Team USA. Goldie went one for 13 his previous timeout, 
Hopefully this time the MVP can do better. Arnato was okay, hit like 250. Wainwright's never pitched in the WBC. 18th season. Guy's like 40 years old. He's going to be pitching. Now, I looked at that Mets team, and I go, oh, excuse me, the, the Team USA team, and I'm like, wow. Like with Mike Trout and Mookie Betts, like their star power ever, but their pitching isn't great. Like after Clayton Kershaw and Wainwright, it gets a little tricky. And similarly, when you look at the Dominican Republic, I remember looking at their lineup and going, wow, two through seven. Like you're going to have a heart attack if you're a pitcher. Like try pitching around this team. And for such a tiny island to have that much baseball-rich talent, to me, that's where it's going to be epic. When you're getting the Dominican Republic versus Puerto Rico or Venezuela in Miami, like the, those crowds are going to be – they've already sold out. Mike Lowell was telling me they've sold out the crowds in Miami for the WBC, which, as the three of us know, is not exactly a robust market for Major League Baseball. But for the WBC, they've sold out. And um, those games, I mean, it's just – it's a festival of baseball, as we're calling it, on the network right now. And I think between USA, the Dominican Republic – and it's always one of those Asian teams, man. Like, good luck counting out Japan. Just because you don't know those players, you watch them, and they're so fundamentally skilled and so disciplined to just play the game the right way and all those cliches. I can't wait, man. March 8th is going to be a lot of fun. And like I said, for Canada, maybe we could pull off an upset or two and, and try to sneak out a win in, in the name of Ernie Witt and Stubby Clap. Yeah, open up the tournament against England, perennial baseball powerhouse. Um, how, should, how should fans of these teams that have players playing in this thing feel? Because, obviously... You know, yeah, yeah. If if you've got a, a Canadian that is playing on Team Canada, um, if uh, well, and Otto Lopez is playing for Team Canada. I was going to say if there was a Blue Jay, but there is one. Uh, if Otto Lopez uh, gets injured, you're not too pleased. But if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. gets injured, your season is over. Uh, and I think the, the the risk of injury obviously exists more with the pitchers. And Blue Jays have one of their starters, Jose Barrios, is going to pitch for Team Puerto Rico. And I know there's pitch limits in this tournament, but how should you feel if you have like a significant player on your Major League Baseball team that's taking part in this thing? You're definitely taking a deep breath the entire time, and I, I think particularly as you said, Ben, for pitching, like Mark DeRosa, my colleague at MLB Network, he's going to be the manager of Team USA. He has said to me, listen, I'm not going to pitch anybody seven strong. Like we're, we're getting in there for like three or four innings, and that's it. He's almost, I think, to me, at least he said, he's going to treat it like an all-star game in terms of the way he treats these starting pitchers. Nobody is ready to go throw 90 pitches high leverage, especially so early in the season. Everyone is respective of the fact these guys have day jobs. And you're right, for pitchers specifically, like there's a reason Alec Manoa is not pitching. Like I think he wants to pitch, but... I would only assume someone like Scott Boris saying, like, yeah, not sure about this one. Like, let's just wait till we get that long-term contract taken care of. So it's definitely a different animal for position players versus the players. But good luck trying to tell a player not to go all out. Like, Shohei Otani is going to want to pitch a complete game. He's not going to say, yeah, I'm on a 40-pitch pitch count. Like, I, I think it's going to be really tricky to manifest what the players want, what the clubs want, and what the managers in the dugout actually want during the WBC. Because you're going to feel that adrenaline say, no, we want to win this game. We don't care about game 162 like we're trying to win right now so i think if you're a fan of a team you're taking a deep breath and just hoping everyone stays healthy adnan uh hoping both quarterbacks uh stay healthy through the the course of four quarters on sunday uh we know neither guys going into this thing at 100 percent, but they've been able to pull it off so far uh i just hope it's close um, and I guess, you know, there's a part of me that's, that's rooting for you to be happy. So I, I guess that nice. I, if I'm, I'd like 50.5% rooting for the Eagles on Sunday, buddy. <laughs> that's, about to say, that's a pleasant surprise. I thought you'd be going against me just to be that guy. Aaron Boone no. chiming in 31-20 Eagles win. There's a prediction from the Yankees manager. We'll see. All right. Thanks, buddy. Talk again soon. Thanks, boy. Thanks, boys. Fly, Eagles, fly. All right.
There's Ad Network, MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. I love the World Baseball Classic. Yeah, that Dominican team is like a powerhouse among powerhouses. There's never going to be it's 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 best on best ish, but it's there's never going to be a scenario where it's real like high stakes playoff baseball at its absolute best where you can have a, like a Madison Bumgarner starting like multiple games in a row throwing 150 pitches and and that that kind of stinks. That's just the nature of the sport that it doesn't matter when you played it, you just you can't have pitchers do their normal thing in the World Baseball Classic. You can't, and I don't know that there's any kind of solution because if you move those goalposts to, oh, let's do an off-season tournament like um, basketball does or, or like people have wanted the NHL to do, like baseball is by far the most restrictive sport in terms of, well, you shouldn't do a lot in the off-season. You need to focus on other stuff, uh, load management, particularly outside of the regular season, uh, the regular rigors of the season. So I don't know what the solution is there. I think maybe it just always exists as kind of a quirky thing. Um, yeah. I don't, yeah, I, like I've kicked around the idea of could you do something around all-star with it and tweak the all-star format a little that's bit. That's tougher. But yeah, and like what are you going to do, Puerto Rico versus the world? <laughs> like that's a that's a bit of an odd one for a, a U.S.-based sport um, or Dominican versus the world as well. But it should be a lot of fun. Like let's, I think best case scenario is a couple of those teams that look really good on paper at least get some meaningful games against each other in the later stages. And maybe Canada beats England. That'll be cool. Uh, Ross Tucker next is the Ross Tucker football podcast. We get you set for Super Bowl Sunday. It's fan drive time. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Time Sports Center 590 the fan. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. Final segment of the program as we send you to Toronto Maple Leafs, Columbus Blue Jackets pregame as the Leafs start the second half of their season with back to backs against Columbus in Columbus tonight, back in Toronto tomorrow night uh, against these Blue Jackets on Hockey Night in Canada. Joe Wall probably going to start tomorrow as Ilya Samsonov gets the start tonight. Also tonight, Raptors playing their first game since uh, we all were made to understand that it's about winning basketball games in the year of Scoot and Wemby. Uh, they host the Jazz. And Walker Kessler, who looked real good last time we saw him, has looked real good since he entered the NBA. And Jakob Pertl, uh ready to play in tonight's game, if not start. Like, what's, what's, what's his deployment going to be? Yeah, so he's going to come off the bench tonight. Uh, I had kind of one eye on Nick Nurse's press conference at our break there. Um, Nurse said eventually the plan is he will start. I think the easy move there, this is me now, I think the easy move there is Precious Achua goes back to the bench role he was so good in, uh, gets a little tougher when OG Ananobi's back, uh, which of those guys comes out of uh, the lineup, the starting lineup then. Um, one of the things to watch, and Nick Nurse alluded to this, and you would have saw it uh, the other night against the Spurs, is that, 
the Spurs play a very different style of defense than the Raptors. It's much more conservative in terms of how they use their center. Uh, Jakob Pertl has the ability to play more of a raptors style, but I'd imagine for now uh, they play to Jakob Pertl's strengths a little bit more when he's on the floor. And what you'll see then is uh, it's called a drop coverage, which is when the center kind of hangs back toward the paint a little bit instead of being as aggressive as you're used to mm. seeing uh, the Raptors' bigs play. All right, so uh, Jakob Pertl will, will get some action tonight, but not in the starting lineup. Um, Super Bowl Sunday. On Sunday, let's talk to uh, Ross Tucker, the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Uh, Ross, happy Friday. Um, I, I think in evaluating this matchup, we, we think about two teams where one just as a whole is better, and that's the Eagles top to bottom, and the other one just has the better quarterback. But outside of the quarterbacks, how close is this matchup in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's clearly the two best teams, clearly the number one seeds. And it doesn't happen very often, I feel like, or at least it feels like it's been a minute since it was the two best teams and the number one seeds both found their way here. It's pretty clearly, I think, the best overall team and the best roster against pretty clearly the best player, um, which is awesome. It seems like, in those matchups, the team always beats the best player. It's weird because I do think it'll be a close game. And in a close game, how can you not give the edge to Mahomes and the Chiefs? Because, number one, they've been here so often. Number two, I mean, we've all seen Mahomes, you know, make the clutch play late in a critical game to win, I don't know, a couple dozen times at this point, whereas Hurts really hasn't had to do that. So I think that's certainly in the Chiefs' favor. Yet I'll go back to the first thing I said, which is that it feels like the better team, best team, always beats the MVP quarterback in these situations. Ben had a stat about that a little earlier as well, that the last, I think, what was it, seven MVPs that made the Super Bowl lost last nine. There you go. Um, Ross, in terms of that, I'm curious. You you lay out a – I think everyone can understand, you know, a quarterback who hasn't been in that spot, a quarterback who hasn't had to do a two-minute drill in that moment. Uh, things maybe feel differently. Does that apply to the coaches as well? Because as good a start as Sirianni's had here, Andy Reid has been through this before, and at one point was the guy that people were like, ah, can't do it quite as well in the playoffs. Um, is there a learning curve on the coaching side when, when you first get kind of punched in the mouth as well? You know, you would think that the answer is yes, but I'm just not sure that's the case. I mean, I'll take you back to five years ago when the Eagles played the Patriots, and it was Tom Brady and Bill Belichick against Nick Foles and Doug Peterson. And Peterson and that 2017 Eagles team had really kind of started you know, going ahead and being the team that was super aggressive on fourth downs and going for it that year. That was the first year that the Eagles, like, totally embraced the analytics. And they kind of had that same attitude in the Super Bowl when fourth and goal, they ran the Philly special. And so I'm not sure the experience really does matter that much. You know, I mean, Andy Reid is – Great with an extra week to prepare. Great with a bye. But if you've watched Sirianni and the Eagles coaching staff this year, I mean, there's a reason why both their coordinators have had so many head coaching interviews. 
I think there's a reason why, you know, they really thoroughly outcoached the Niners, I thought. I mean, you know, they were so prepared when Devontae Smith didn't actually catch that pass to get on the ball as soon as possible and snap it. Niners weren't able to get a challenge flag out. Then when Purdy got hit on the elbow, it looked like a forward pass to me. They did challenge that. Sirianni went for it from fourth and one from his own 34-7-7 game late in the second quarter. I I guess he's kind of proven it to me. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a two-year sample size. He switched the offense midway through last year to run the ball more. I mean, he and his coordinators have kind of made all the right moves, so... I'm not sure Andy Reid is the better like in-game coach in this in this thing. Well, well, we'll we'll see how that plays out. And one of the more interesting things that the Eagles do, Ross, and you and I touched on it a little bit last week. Uh, glad to hear you're you're feeling better, by the way. Um, is that you know this Eagles defense is able to get a ton of pressure on the quarterback without blitzing in traditional fashion? Uh, we don't need to necessarily have that specific conversation again. But I am curious, you as an offensive lineman, how nice has it been? How vindicated do you feel that a lot of the conversation from a tactical perspective this week has been about the offensive line play? Yeah, I love it. I mean, as a fellow, as a former offensive lineman, I love it. That's the other thing I kind of keep coming back to is that, you know, the Eagles definitely have the best offensive line probably by a decent margin. And I'm pretty confident they have the best D-line, too. When's the last time, first of all, that a team had that, had both the best O-line and the best D-line? And then secondly, when's the last time that team lost? You know what I mean? It's just, um, I think the offensive line is historically good for the Eagles. You know, the center is a Hall of Famer and the best player at his position in the league. The right tackle is the best player in his position in the league. Might be a Hall of Famer, too. The left side of the O-line, guys, like, I don't know if you've seen these guys. My lot of the left tackle is 6'8", like 380, with almost no fat on him from Australia. And the left guard, Landon Dickerson, is a little over 6'6", like 345, 350. So when they come off the ball, I, I want you guys to sit there in your Toronto studio Pretend you're a defensive tackle and you're lined up on the outside shoulder of Landon Dickerson, okay, the left guard, and they have a double team where they're trying to knock you back. Imagine trying to hold your ground against 730 pounds of pent-up aggression and fury in their mid-20s, in their prime. They move well. They come flying off the ball. Like, I I didn't take any physics past high school, but I don't think you're supposed to be able to hold up against that. Like, like I don't don't think you're supposed to not get knocked back. I don't even know it's possible to not get knocked back. And the issue for the Chiefs is, like, my, my thing is this. Can the Chiefs hang up front? They're not as good, but can they be good enough? Because they're not bad. I mean, the old line for the Chiefs is pretty good. D-line's got some good players. I just don't know that they have the depth on the D-line. And I think the Eagles can wear them down throughout the game, especially if they stay committed to the run game. Yeah. Well, and and they do have a future Hall of Famer at quarterback, and they have a future Hall of Famer at tight end, the Chiefs do. Um, Maybe the greatest of all time. 
depending on your point of view. Uh, George Kittle maybe wants to be a head coach as well because he made some noise today saying that the Eagles have to take Travis Kelsey out of the game or they will lose, which is, yeah, pretty obvious. But, like, how how much do you get uh, dedicate your defensive scheme to disrupting the, the, the Chiefs' best offensive weapon outside of Patrick Mahomes? So, by the way, has any team – that got their you-know-what kicked in the NFC Championship game ever talked more about the team that kicked their you-know-what than the Niners this week? Like, Robbie Gold, a kicker, is out here saying, make Jalen Hurts have to play quarterback. Uh, Brandon Ayuk said he thinks the Chiefs are going to kill him. I mean, hey, 49ers, we kind of all watched the game. You've got your butts kicked. Like, what are you talking about? I I mean... And they're like, oh, well, both their quarterbacks got hurt. Yeah. Does the Eagles' D-line hurt them? I mean, (laughs) like, these weren't fluke injuries, like non-contact injuries. These were the Eagles' D-line beating the Niners up front and then smashing the quarterbacks. It's kind of part of the sport of football. So, anyway, um, look, one of the prop bets I like the most, and I talked about this on the Even Money Betting podcast, I like the Kelsey over six and a half catches. And I'm sure that the Eagles have talked about Kelsey a lot. And I'm sure they'll have a good plan. But the guy's like unstoppable. I mean, if you if you play man coverage, he's just very good against man coverage. If you play zone, like both against man and zone, I'm convinced that Andy Reid just tells him to do whatever the heck he wants. It doesn't even look like he's running routes. Like it looks like he just Kind of running around. It looks like he's in the backyard at recess or after school and just kind of finding it. Like, just, you know, when the guy says, All right, get open on three, ready, break. You know, that's what it looks like Kelsey's doing. So I really like the over six and a half receptions for Kelsey. And I was talking about that. That was one of our best bets on the Even Money Betting podcast is the over. Because here's the thing if the Chiefs win, I can't see him having less than seven or eight catches. If the Chiefs lose and they're, like, trying to come from behind, again, I feel like Kelsey gets seven or eight catches. So, either way, I'd be surprised if that over doesn't hit. Um, You know, a game like this is going to come down to the red zone and third down. They're both going to move the ball. They're both going to put up – the the question is, is it field goals or touchdowns when you get to the red zone? And one third down stop here, one third down stop there could be the difference. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, that is the case. I mean, I'm, I'm also super interested in, in the game plan for for both uh, defensive coordinators and specifically Steve Spagnuolo because, I mean, you look at the, the numbers for Jalen Hurts when he's under pressure, when he's being blitzed and when he's not, there there's a huge discrepancy. And he is among the worst quarterbacks in the NFL when he's being blitzed, Ross. Um, do you expect the Chiefs to try and send as many rushers as possible quite often in this game to try and disrupt the, the young quarterback? So I actually, I mean, two things. One is he hasn't played great since he hurt his shoulder. He really hasn't. So I know what I would do if I were the Chiefs. I would totally load up the box. And I would do everything I could to stop the run and not get run over, number one. And then number two, when they do throw it, I would either blitz 
to test him that way, because I don't think he's been great against the Blitz. Or I would take away the underneath stuff and have him throw it deep. Now you're playing with fire because A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith are really good. But I guess I kind of feel like I can live with it if Jalen Hurts beats me throwing the ball deep. Like, I can live with that. I can't live with just letting the Eagles O-line just mash me into oblivion and knock him around and just run the ball. I got If I'm the Chiefs, it's weird because I think he got second in the MVP voting. I'm still coming into this game saying I'm going to make Jalen Hurts beat me. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, and, yeah, in that regard, uh, the Niners are correct, uh, and I think the Chiefs will do the same. Ross, uh, happy Super Bowl. Thanks for doing this, pal. Absolutely. Been great talking with you guys all year. Enjoy uh, enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the game. I think it'll be a great one. Me too. Thanks, Ross. See ya. There is Ross Tucker, the Ross Tucker football podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe Jalen Hurts is is who he was at times during the regular season, and maybe he will elevate in a close game, and maybe he'll even bring the Eagles back from behind. We have no sample to gauge that off of because he's <laughs> had no opportunities to do that this season. It would be quite a time to do that, though, in the Super Bowl against an all-time Chiefs team. Yeah, let's see it. It'd be fun. <laughs> it's uh, like, look, I don't, I don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, I like yeah. Patrick Mahomes at the Kansas City Chiefs uh, a lot. I like, I have like an inordinate number of people that I guess I follow on social media or I'm friends with who are Eagles fans, and like there have been a handful of Raptors over the years that I've talked football with, and we're Eagles fans, so I have a, an appreciation of the Eagles as well. Go Birds, of course. Um, I just want a good game. That's that's where I'm at. Yeah, and I think we're getting yeah. it. No, I would be shocked if we if we didn't. All right, so uh, Leafs pregame coming your way in about 15 minutes time. Leafs uh, with a home and home against the Blue Jackets. There's no better way to whet your appetite for the second half of the season than multiple games against the powerhouse Columbus Blue Jackets and 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 Gavrikov, uh, future Toronto Maple Leaf. Uh, Ilya Samsonov gets the start tonight. He's now the unquestioned starter. I mean, he's been that at times throughout the course of the season, but certainly now. After he's performed well, Matt Murray performed not that well in a game against the Bruins and then horribly in a game against the Panthers in which Samsonov arrived in relief and performed real, real well. And Murray still working his way back from injury is on injured reserve. And so up comes Joseph Wall. This is a situation, Blake, that Samsonov has really excelled at. And the situation I'm describing is when he's been told, you're the, you're the guy. And it's it's not a situation he started the season in. In fact, it was the complete opposite because it was it was an open uh, tryout, an open audition for the opening day starter, and Matt Murray performed well enough in the preseason that he got the game one start against the Montreal Canadiens. The, the unquestioned number one starter, Matt Murray, thing lasted only that one game because he got injured immediately thereafter. And Samsonov was real good. When Murray got hurt, over the eight games at the beginning of the season that Samsonov was the number one, he had a 921 save percentage. Murray comes back, and I, I get it. These are not huge samples, but th- they are going to prove my point, so I'm going to use them. When Murray came back, the save percentage for Samsonov dropped to 908. And then Murray gets hurt again and stinks out the joint, back up to 913 for Samsonov, and that's including some clunkers down the stretch. Like, it does seem, and, and also I'm gleaning... 
some of the human stuff from some of the post-game comments from this guy that it doesn't feel like he's totally immune from outside forces and the conversations that are happening outside of the walls of the locker room. It does feel like this is a guy that needs to be told, hey, there's nobody in your rearview mirror. This is your gig. Now take it and run with it, and, and we'll see you starting tonight. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one for me to navigate because – you know, you you can try to go back through a guy's history, right? And he's had three seasons prior to this one, and you're trying to figure out, well, is he better when he plays more, or does he play more because he's better? And it's mm-hmm. like you you can't sort that out. Like the the bubble season, he was really really good um, when he got to play a bunch, and he got to play a bunch in part because he was playing well, but in part because Vanacek was uh, just not very effective. There have been times where like last year with the Capitals, the team had to lean on him a lot more and he was a dud. Like his most play, the the month last season when he had the starting job, basically the entire month, he had a sub 900 save percentage. So um, I don't know. I think we can look into that stuff, but I don't think there's anything conclusive about it. I think the, you know, my bigger take on it is probably just that he's been good more often than not so far yeah. this year. You know, you're talking like five out of every eight starts, um, he's had like a, a really strong save percentage. So um, like, I think, yeah, I think it's five out of every eight. He's gone 90 or over, which is the like, advanced stats on him are spectacular. Like, the yeah, high we broke those outrageous. down. We broke those down comparing him and Murray when, uh, when we were looking at, you know, before Murray got hurt, when's the next time Murray will start and um, high danger stuff, five on five stuff, um, you know, even a little bit better on the, or he's gotten stronger on the penalty kill, which is still one area of weakness for the Leafs goaltenders. Um, he's he's real good, and uh, you know Joseph Wall too. I'm curious to see how that one goes on Saturday because a 9.30 save percentage is just about the highest save percentage you could realistically have when you've played <laughs> almost a thousand minutes. Like it, it's hard to fathom being any better than that in a meaningful way, uh, and. Yeah, let's see what uh, let's see what he's got at the at the NHL level. So um, we uh, there's also this story that's kind of just breaking as we went on the air today that involves mm-hmm. the Canadian national soccer teams, both the men's and the women's team, uh, who are upset and have both issued statements. And it feels like that. Well, the women have initiated like their statement came out first, but the men issued a statement shortly thereafter in support. I mean, the, the, the Canadian women's statement starts thusly. The Canadian women's national soccer team is both outraged and deeply concerned with the news of significant cuts to the national team programs for 2023. We understand that the men's national soccer team shares our frustration and concerns and intends to issue its own statement shortly. They did issue those statements. Now, Christine Sinclair's Twitter account is the place to go for all the info here, and she's actually published... Uh, what looks like a, a screenshot of, of some actual financial details here over the 2020 and 2021 season. And she's highlighted expenses that the national team program has made on both the men's and the women's team. So in 2020, they were separated by fewer than, by, yeah, it was like a $100,000 difference between the expenses for both teams, just over $3 million. Uh, for the men's team and just under $3 million for the women's team. 2021, the men's team expenses jump up to over $11 million, but the women's team hovering at $5 million, so $6 million difference between the expenses for both. So I imagine that is the 
illumination she's trying to bring to the fore that this is a men's team, yes, that, that had some success, made it to a World Cup for the first time in forever. Women are going to the World Cup in, in the summer. They've been routinely successful on the world stage. And you wonder, like, there's nothing imminent because there's no games imminent. But, Blake, like, this is a situation where we've already seen the men not play in a game. The, I, I mean, this is obviously pretext for, th- for that happening again. Absolutely. And I, I, it's a tough, it's such a tough spot for the women because you worked your whole life to get to go to the World Cup and perform at that stage. And if that's your next leverage point for job action, you put that, that's a really unfair spot for these players to be in. Um, I think it's, and, and I think that's part of why it's important that uh, the men have supported this, not that the women's case isn't enough on their own, but there's an immediacy here on the women's side. Um, one of the, the more interesting standpoints from the statements too is you pointed out those financials that Christine Sinclair tweeted and everyone should go check those out but one of the biggest complaints from both sides is the lack of transparency and where all those expenses are going uh it's just there's not a, a great accounting of it and then my quick look at it is well why is there a 5.3 million revenue surplus uh yeah. like like I don't think we're supposed to be paying out CEO bonuses. Like, like this isn't this isn't a, a grocery chain, you know. I, I don't know where that's going. Um, maybe yeah. it's supposed to be invested in the following year for World Cup and et cetera. But uh, yeah, this is a really big thing, and there needs to be swift action on it um, because this women's team is really, really good, and they deserve to have not only their World Cup performance this summer, but one unencumbered by. Uh, job action and a labor dispute like Canada soccer needs to step up yeah I know it just reminds me of that conversation we had with James Sharman where I was like hey at what point can we stop clowning on on the Canadian national program and he's like well we got to see it for for a long period of time and yeah you know again the good vibes last like a week and a half where John Herdman says he's coming back and then this this stuff so good good stuff ridiculous it is it's Re-freaking ridiculous. All right, time now for last call. Brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game, and we got to focus on the Super Bowl naturally. The total is Eagles minus one and a half in Arizona. MVP odds. This is where, like, honestly, if I were gonna bet the the Chiefs instead of taking the money line total, which would obviously they, well, you know, they'd be close to this. But like Patrick Mahomes for the MVP at plus one thirty is where I would lean. Uh, I, w- I don't like Jalen Hurts at, at plus 130. Like, I think if the Eagles win this thing, you might be looking at a, a Hassan Reddick at uh, plus 3,000 as the as an MVP, which I kind of like um, in that regard. Um, if you like the QBs, it's minus 500 totally. Uh, defensive lineman, plus 2,200. Nice little bet as well. Coin toss. Heads uh, and tails both minus uh, 103 for me. It's uh, tails never fails. I uh, wish Ooh. we had more time to get to some of these props. Anything that you like, Blake? What's your favorite uh, prop? I, I just wanted to point out that it's it's been heads four times in the last five years, so tails is due. Tails has yeah. failed, but it's due. <laughs> it is due. All right. That was Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. All right. We'll be back on Monday. Leafs Nation pregame. With Brent Gunning and Gord Stelic is next. Leafs and Blue Jackets will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend, everybody. See ya.